My name is Meredith Zell, and I'm a member here at the Heights. Um, We're going to spend some time in God's Word together. Today's teaching comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 22 in the Bible. Um, The large numbers are chapters, and the small numbers are verses. Let's hear what God has to speak to us today. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl to to fetch it, opened it and saw him, the child, and there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? he asked his daughters. Why did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you um, for the gift of your word. Um, We ask that you would speak clearly to us through it today. Help us to not just listen, but to truly obey it for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for Meredith. Thank you for reading for us, Meredith. Uh, Well, very good morning to you. Glad to gather together this morning. Uh, As we dive in this morning, uh, or before we dive in this morning, I want to start out with being um, just a little bit vulnerable with you, if that's okay. Is that okay? If I'm just a little bit vulnerable with you? Thank you. Um, uh, And here's the conviction behind this. Uh, The day that I can't be vulnerable and honest with you, our church family, is probably the day I need to step down from being a Christian pastor. Um, Because uh, this whole thing, this whole Jesus thing, is about us needing Jesus, right? Um, And so, uh, here it goes. Uh, Two weeks weeks ago, uh, while I was preaching to you, I had, and I don't want to overstate this, but some sort of mini-anxiety attack uh, right in the middle of my sermon. Um, and the, the only way I can describe this is that uh, I got really confused uh, while I was preaching. Um, I got really out of breath and uh, kind of felt like I couldn't, I couldn't preach anymore. Um, and to, to be really transparent with you, it's really, uh, it's really kind of uh, given me the runaround for the past two weeks. Uh, because I have been anxious about doing this again. Uh, because I've been wondering, is it going to happen to me again? 
uh, in, the, in front of hundreds of people. Um, so, and, and it's weird. Uh, one, of the things I want to, one of the things I want to say is it's weird because, um, I mean, you guys know this. This isn't like a humble brag, but I've done this literally hundreds of times at this point. Like, I, it is not new for me to stand on a stage and teach the Bible, you know. And, and this is the first time that that's happened to me. Uh, I've never... Had that. I feel anxious about preaching, but normally like a good anxious, like let me at it, not like a, I don't think I can do this, you know? Um, so I, 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 that happened, and it was really disorienting, and then um, I went on vacation. That Sunday afternoon, I went on vacation with my in-laws, went out of town, and uh, came back. So I didn't get a chance to share it with any of our leadership or anything before I really, and kind of unpack it uh, before I went out of town. But this last week, I was sitting with Jonathan and Mike, our two other pastors, and I was just sharing my experience and how disorienting it had been. And as I was sharing it, Jonathan, who was just up here uh, on stage, uh, his eyes got really big, and he, he said, hey, man, I, this is weird, and I didn't really realize it, but I, I had the exact same thing happen last week while I was preaching. Um, like, confused and got super nervous all of a sudden, and so we talked about it a little bit, and I, one, of, one of the things that's been on my heart and on my mind is I think that since we've opened up the book of Exodus, this has happened both weeks. Um, and I think that what's happening up here internally with whoever's teaching the Bible uh, is indicative of probably what's happening in many of you, uh, and that is spiritual attack. I think that there's spiritual attack happening uh, to me, to Jonathan last week, and in the room. Uh, as we gather together and open up God's word and talk about what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus. And so um, what I want to do is I just want to start out with prayer <laughs> and ask for God's help. And uh, I, I want to, I've been vulnerable, so I want to ask you to be a little bit vulnerable, okay? Um, and what I want to do is if you have felt attacked by the enemy over the past couple of weeks, I just want to give you the opportunity to kind of identify yourself. Just, you can just shoot your hand up like this. And I just want to pray a prayer from Ephesians chapter 6 over us as a church family. Uh, I want to pray the armor of God over us as a church family before we uh, dive in. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I'm doing this. It's taking time. And I've got a really long sermon. <laughs> so just buckle up, okay? <laughs> so here's what I want to do. Uh, I, I, I want to I want to open up to Ephesians chapter 6. You don't, ha- you don't have to open up. And uh, if, you've, if you've felt particularly attacked by the enemy over the last few weeks or over the last few months, I just want to, I just want to invite you to uh, raise your hand, and I just want to pray a prayer uh, over you. Here's what I mean by enemy attack. I mean, uh, you've, you've just been wrestling with a lot of doubt. Maybe you've wrestled with a lot of confusion about your life or... Um, uh, or the way God feels about you or thinks about you. You've wrestled with whether or not you are even a follower of Jesus. Maybe that, that's indicative of spiritual attack. You've wrestled with uh, the value of your life. Like, and, am I even valuable? Um, you've been caught in cycles of believing lies. That's been my last two weeks. I can't preach. I'm not, I can't do this. I can't stand on that stage again. I, that's where I've been, if I'm being perfectly honest. That, those are lies. That it, it just, and when you're there, it's easy to be like, believe the truth. Well, it's like, well, buddy, you try to be there. You know? It's just when it's like bouncing around in your mind. So if you want to just identify yourself, no pressure. Not everybody has to do it. If you don't do it, it doesn't mean your life is totally together and you're thriving. Uh, but if you felt like uniquely attacked, um, would love for you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray over me. I'm going to pray over you. Yeah, just for God's protection. This is Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Lord Jesus, you say you're present with your people by the Holy Spirit. And so we invite you to come. Holy Spirit, we need your help. God, we pray out of verse 10 that we would be strengthened by the Lord and by your vast strength. God, we are weak people. I am weak. I am not sufficient in myself to do this. These people, whether they know it or not, they're weak too. And so they need your help, God. So if they have raised their hand, I pray fresh strength over them. I pray that they would put on the full armor of God, that we would put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. God, we don't want to cower as a church under the schemes of the devil that feel hard. We want to stand 
with boldness and courage. So I'm praying for fresh boldness, fresh courage. Say this, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, I pray that we would take up the full armor of God so that we may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take our stand. A lot of standing in this passage, God. A lot of courage. In this, but we need courage from heaven. We need power from heaven. I pray that we would stand, therefore, with the truth like a belt around our waist. God, our enemy is a liar. He is the father of lies. And so I pray the truth of, of the gospel over us. I pray the truth of your word over us, that we would believe the truth and not lies. God, righteousness like the armor on our chest. Our enemy is an accuser. He wants to accuse us and make us think that what we have done defines us, God. But we remember that your gospel says that even the worst of sin can be forgiven and we've been given the righteousness of Christ and when you look at us, you do not see our sin, but you see us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God, and so we want to believe that truth. I pray that truth over us right now. God, I pray, verse 15, that our feet would be sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. God, where there is relational conflict in our church, take it away as we put on the sandals of the gospel of peace. Our enemy is a divider. He loves when we're mad at each other. He loves when we gossip about each other. And so would we put on the sandals of the gospel of peace? Would we, would we be peacemakers, God? In every situation, I pray that we would take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. God, our enemy loves when we live in cycles of defeat and depression. Our enemy loves when we lose our faith that you are still the God that does great things, that you are the God that does not abandon us, Our enemy loves when we lose faith that you are the God that's given us the Holy Spirit and the hope of eternal life. He loves that. And so would you give us the gift of faith today? God, we need faith. Because it's with faith that you're able to do great things, not only in the world, but in our life, that we defeat the, uh, we deflect the arrows of the evil one. God, we need faith. Pray that we would take up the helmet of salvation. God, in Romans 12, your word says that part of the way we're saved is by the renewing of our mind. Our minds are a big deal with our faith when it comes to like our, our life with you. Um, and just from experience over the last couple of weeks, God, lies, it's just so easy to dwell on lies. And so, God, I pray the helmet of salvation over our church family. God, that, that you would protect our minds. That you would give us healthy minds with healthy gospel thoughts. And then finally, we would take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What I love about this, Jesus, is that the sword of the Spirit is not a sword that we wield. It is the sword that the Spirit of God wields. And so when we open it, we're about to open it here in just a second to Exodus chapter 2. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come and fight back the works of darkness that are happening in this room right now. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right. I think we're ready. I think we're ready. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And I'll say this, too. I don't share that so that you guys, after church, come up and are like, you're great. Okay? Um, or so that you email me. If you want to email me encouragement, do it. I mean, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I'm being genuine. Like, I don't share that. I'm not trying to be funny. I don't share that. So you're like, oh, my gosh, I, is Corbin okay? Like, I, I think I'm okay. Um, but I, I, I just want you to know, like, what's going on. And I, and I feel what you feel in a lot of ways that the enemy the enemy's hard to do battle with. Okay. Grab a Bible. Open it up to Exodus 2. If you're new to the Bible, everything's going to be on the screen so you can look right up here. Here's the big question we're going to chase down today out of Exodus chapter 2. What do I do when it feels like God is far away? What do I do when it feels like God is far away? What do I do when it feels like God cares for everybody else but me? What do I do when it feels like God, the big God, he must have a lot on his plate, has forgotten 
about little me. What do we do? Here's how this works. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, here's how this works. Um, when life's going well, it's easy to feel like God is close, right? And it's easy to roll into church and be like, you have no rival. And you're like, yes, he has no rival. You know, and you're feeling it. But the reality is we don't, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a, in a really broken world, in a really hard world where life doesn't always go well. And so what do we do when life's not going well? Because a lot of times, man, when you've, when you've lost the job or you've lost the relationship or you've lost your health or whatever that hard thing is, when suffering hits, it's like, man, God, it no longer feels like God has no rival. It feels like he's got a whole lot of rivals and they're getting the best of me. Okay. And so what do we do when it feels like God is far away? What do we do when life gets hard and life gets dark? Now, here's what I'm aware of. Um, life, some of you are, are, are like, yes, I'm there right now, and you're leaning in, you're like, give me answers from the word. My life is really hard right now. Um, others of you have had a great weekend, and you're like, wow, what a downer. Um, so there's two groups of people in the room right now. There, there are those of you who are there right now, and then there are those of you that will be there one day, okay? Because like this no one is kind of like immune from life getting hard. And so, man, we just want to go like, what do we do? And this is the gift of Exodus. What do we do when, when it feels like God is far away? Well, this is how the people of God had to be feeling as we roll into Exodus chapter 2. Things are not going well for God's people in Exodus 1 and 2. And it seems like God is nowhere to be found, Okay. It's like, where, where is God? It is super dark. If you remember last week, Jonathan did a great job teaching Exodus 1. In Exodus 1, we've got the people of God facing brutal slavery and child-focused genocide. Two of the kind of like darkest, sickest realities that us human beings can cook up. Like, this is what they are caught in in Exodus chapter 1 going into Exodus chapter 2. It's dark. It's a dark, dark part of the Bible. But this is confusing because if you remember back in the book of Genesis, Genesis comes right before Exodus if you're new to the Bible, God had given these people, these people that are trapped in darkness, these incredible promises about how he was going to bless their nation and grow their nation and multiply their nation and give their nation land, right? So they had the promises of God, but now it is really dark. From their perspective, it probably looks and feels like the God that made those promises was a million miles away. And it's like, I can imagine their conversations. Their conversations were probably something like this, like, hey man, where do you think, where do you think God is? Because like, they, they had to know about these promises. They've been passing these promises. Where do you think God is? And it's like, man, wherever God is, he is not here. Wherever God is, he, is, he must be off doing something else with a whole bunch of other people. To the people of God in chapter 2, it feels like God is a million miles away and nowhere to be found. Where's God? So here's how this teaching is going to work. We're going we're gonna to walk through the passage together, and we're going to get our hands dirty in the Bible. Okay, you guys good with that? It's the year of the Bible. We're going to study the Bible together. So here's why I'm saying that. You're going to have to lean in because these passages get long, okay? So don't tune out, or you're going to miss some stuff that you're going to really want to know for later. Um, so lean in, and after we study the text together, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out, and I'm going to show you two ways that we respond when it feels like God is far away. Okay, two ways that we respond when it feels like God, God is far away. And, and I think action is really important to this teaching. That when God feels far away, we don't fall into apathy. We step into action. Okay? Whenever God feels far away, we don't fall into apathy like, oh my gosh, God's given up on me. We step into action. Okay? So, let's get, let's get our hands dirty in the text. Let's look at verse 1 together. It says this. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. These are the people of God, Hebrew people in the tribe of Levi. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, here's what we're supposed to feel and think as we read verse 1. Oh, no, that's not good. Why? Because they're killing the baby boys right now. Oh, no. All of our baby boys are being thrown into the Nile River. What is going to happen? But watch this. When she saw, this is a mom looking at her son, when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. 
But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance, this is Moses' sister, stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to her baby brother. Now, this is the kind of classic uh, Moses as a little baby being put in the Nile River in a little cute little basket by his mom. And it's really easy for us, if you've been around church for a while, to kind of like sanitize the scene, right? And be like, oh yeah, like, this is just part of a little story. Um, but I mean, as I, was, as I was writing this, I was actually texting Allie, um, who's my wife, if you don't know us. Um, and uh, I was texting Allie and she, about this scene, and she, she just told me, she, she was like, man, there is no scene in the whole of, a bi- whole of the Bible that is more tragic than this scene right here to me as a mom. Like, you just think about it. If you have kids, you can relate to this. If you don't have kids, maybe you have a, a niece or a, naf- a nephew that, like, man, imagine, like, the, the love of a mother and the courage of a mother and the sadness of Moses' mom in this scene as she's like, man, there is no better option for my baby boy than for me to build this little boat for him and and put him out into the Nile River and just kind of see what happens to him. What a tragedy. Like, I think about that with my baby girls. What a tragedy this scene is. So she puts him in the reeds. Verse 5, this happens. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket. This is Pharaoh's daughter. Saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw the child. And there he was, a a little boy crying. She felt sorry for him. Another way that phrase is translated is she felt compassion for him. She felt compassion for the little baby laying in the river. Oh my goodness, whose little boy is this? She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Now watch the courage of Moses' older sister. I love this in verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, this is a power move by this little girl, okay? Hey, uh, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Now remember, what Pharaoh's daughter is supposed to be doing is throwing that baby straight into the Nile. Okay? Should I go call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Now, right here, she should be throwing that baby into the Nile, um, and she's being faced with a choice, okay? And we're supposed to feel the choice. Is she going to align with the family power of Pharaoh, her dad? Is she going to align with the world power, the political power? Or is she going to get a little rebellious and go, "Uh uh-uh, no way. Well, we find out in verse 8, she says this, go. Pharaoh's daughter told her so. The girl went, I love this, and notice who she calls, calls the boy's mother. What, a, guys, this is a redemptive little trick, which is amazing, that what, what happens is Moses' older sister goes to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, hey, can I get, can I get somebody to nurse, the, nurse that little baby for you? And she goes, yeah, yeah, we're going to need that. And she goes back to her mom, and she goes, mom, hey, I got, I got Moses back, I think. I think I got Moses back. And like, hey, hey, I think I got him back. And you get to nurse him. And what a redemptive little thing that Moses' biological mom, she probably would have nursed, I'll bring this up later, for four or five years at this point in history. It's a long time for you moms who've nursed before. Uh, I got two kids of my own. Babe, that's a long time, isn't it? That's a long time to nurse a baby. Um, but like, what a redemptive little thing. That his biological mom gets to like spend this time uh, with her son. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I will pay your wages. So she's getting paid to do this. Paid to nurse her own baby. I love that. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him. This had to be another just tough thing. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So he's adopted into the family of Pharaoh. It's very important for the story. She named him Moses because she said, quote, this is what his name means, I drew him out of the water. A little foreshadowing there, folks. Uh, He is being drawn out of the water now. This will not be the last time that this guy is drawn out of the water. The next time he just won't come alone. 
Okay? A lot of foreshadowing going on in the story. Now, between verses 10 and 11, 40 years go by. So here's what we know about Moses at this point. This is important stuff for the rest of the story. Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So he is the adopted grandson of Pharaoh. Okay? Not a lot of people realize this when they read the Exodus story, that like Moses is a politically powerful guy. He's like inside the chambers of power. Okay? He has a lot of influence. He received the finest of what Egypt has to offer. He probably received the best education, the best food, the best housing. Moses lived an incredible life of privilege. He's in the halls of power in Egypt. But as he grows up, he has this sense, and we don't really know how he has this sense, but he has this sense that he doesn't belong to Egypt. He actually belongs to the Hebrew people. Now, this is my... This is kind of just like my little guess. I think that Pharaoh's daughter is awesome, and he let his, he let him, she let him maintain a relationship with his biological mom. I, that's, that's my guess. Total speculation, but my little guess, okay? Um, so he knows. He's like, man, I don't think I belong in the halls of power. I think I belong with the Hebrew people, and his heart begins to break for the condition of his people. Look at this in verse 11. Years later, After Moses had grown up, so at this point, like I said, we go straight from Moses as a baby to Moses at about 45 years old. Okay, so this is a big gap. Okay, Moses is about 45. Um, Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out, pay attention to this language, to his own people. Okay, so he's not, he doesn't consider the people of Egypt his people, to his own people. And he observed their forced labor, labor, their slavery. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, pay attention to this, one of his people, the writer, who is Moses, is wanting us to get this. Okay, these are my people. You're not going to treat my people like that. Looking all around and seeing no one, that means he's about to do something bad that he doesn't want anybody to see. He struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. Okay, so Moses, the deliverer, is a murderer. We were in pre-service prayer, and one of the things that was prayed was, God, I pray that people who are coming in that have really big sin would know that that doesn't disqualify you from doing great things through them. So maybe you just need to hear that, that Moses was a murderer before he was a deliverer. So he murders a guy. Now here's what we're supposed to see happening right here in the narrative of the book of Exodus. We're supposed to see in Moses right passion, wrong way, okay? Right passion, wrong way. Right passion, wrong way. Right passion, wrong way. You see, Moses has these incipient giftings. He is a rescuer and a deliverer, okay? It's who God made him to be. He's a rescuer of God's people. God's put these gifts and passions in him, but his gifts and passions get the best of him, and he handles them in a wrong way. In fact, it's a very tragic way. He murders a guy. I don't know if you've ever, this is way less severe, but if you've ever had the right passion wrong way, you probably have, where you're like, I feel so passionate about this, and then you just kind of make a jerk of yourself. Like, we all do this, right? This is Moses, except it's level 10,000. He murders a guy. Don't mean to laugh about that. Right passion wrong way. Verse 13, after he murders the guy, the next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, hey, why are you attacking your neighbor? Notice a little bit of the hypocrisy there. (laughs) He just got done attacking a guy. Verse 14, the guy responds, who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. Here's his oh crap moment. Oh crap, everybody knows what I've done. I looked around and made sure nobody was looking. My eyes failed me. (laughs) Somebody was watching. The people know. In verse 15, we find out that this news goes all the way up the totem pole, all the way to Pharaoh. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. In verses 16 through 22, we find Moses the deliverer, the one hope that these people had out in the middle of nowhere 
stuck in the desert. Okay? Now, here's what we're supposed to feel as we read this. We're supposed to feel this question. Where is God? Where's God? Here's what's happening in the story. People of God are, the people of God are trapped in terrible circumstances, slavery and genocide. Nothing is going their way. They're being persecuted big time. Moses tries to do something about it, but his anger and his passion get the best of him, and he kills a guy. And now the one hope they had, don't miss this, the one hope they had, someone with political sway and political power, Moses, he has the, he's in Pharaoh's house. He has political sway. The one hope that they had is fleeing out in the desert. Here's what we're supposed to feel. Where's God? Does God care? When his people are trapped in darkness and suffering, does God care? Let me ask you this question. When is the last time that you asked that question? Where's God? Where is God? If I can be honest, I've, I've been asking that question for the last two weeks. God, why am I getting all weird and nervous on stage and then questioning that I can even do the one thing that I'm supposed to be good at? Where are you? Why are you letting me feel this? I've asked that question. I've had an on and off relationship with terrible acid reflux for five years since planting this thing. <laughs> and I, seriously, I, I have asked Christmas Eve morning. I was trying to think, like, when have I been asking this? Christmas Eve morning, this last Christmas Eve, I was so sick to my stomach. I was throwing up Christmas Eve morning. And I was going, God... What in the world? I got to preach tonight, man. Don't you know that? It's Christmas Eve, and I got to be happy. It's like I've asked that in seasons of criticism. I've asked that when our church gets kicked out of places. It's like, don't you know, God, I'm trying to do something good for you, and all you do is keep like allowing us to get kicked out of elementary schools because people don't like us? Where are you? Where are you? Now, I'll tell you, When I get in that place, um, here's what I'm really tempted to do. I'm really tempted to numb and escape. Okay? When I start asking those kinds of like really hard life questions, I'm tempted to numb and escape. And here's, I'll let you in on my way. Uh, Because it's not, it's not disqualifying, but it's dangerous. Uh, I like to like binge Netflix plan a vacation, and buy a bunch of stuff, okay? Like, when I just need to get out of it, I just want a good show, drama. I want to go to Cherry Creek Mall, wander around. I want to, like, just numb and escape, and I want, like, a little vacation out there on the, on the horizon where I can be like, that's when I can really get away from this hard stuff. Numb and escape. Most people, whenever they start asking really hard life questions about God, you might feel this, we want to numb and escape. This is what most people do. They run. We can, and we can do that. We can try to numb ourselves with some cocktail of Netflix and alcohol and sex and money and career and travel. And just so we're clear, by the way, I'm a big fan of all six of those, but in the right amount and in the right context. They're good things, they're gifts, but they are not a good way of numbing ourselves to hard questions about God and life. This is what most people do. In fact, most people, guys, do you know this? Most people spend their whole lives doing this, running from hard things. And if you choose numbing and you choose escape, man, it'll just lead you into a spiral. Really well. Don't numb, don't escape. I think the word in Exodus 2 gives us a better way. Here they are, two, two actions you can take. Look and choose. Look and choose, look and choose, look and choose, look and choose. Let's unpack them. Number one, when God feels far away, look for God's hidden hand. Okay? Look for God's hidden hand. When you feel like God is far away, when you feel like God has left you high and dry, look for God's hidden hand in your life. One of the crazy things about this passage that we're studying today is that God is not mentioned one time, okay? That's where I got this whole teaching, okay? He's not there. Where is he? He's not mentioned once. 
But just because he isn't mentioned does not mean that he is not there. Now, here, this is a really important life principle if you're a follower of Jesus. Just because you can't see God or sense God or feel God in your life does not mean he is not there. See this all over the Bible. On the first reading of this passage, as we just worked through it, it's easy to think God has left his people high and dry in the darkest of suffering. But on second reading, and we're about to do a second reading, you will see that he is right there in the middle of it, stirring up a plan for their good and their deliverance. They might feel like he is absent, but he's actually actively loving them and planning their good, even though we can't see it. So throughout the passage, there are these little fingerprints of God's hidden hand that the original readers would have seen and that we are supposed to see, we are supposed to see as well. So the original readers of this, um, it, they, would, they would have been reading it in the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language, and they actually, uh, mo- most of them would have had the whole, most of the Old Testament memorized. <laughs> so they, they know it really well. So when they read things, they, they would have picked up on things that we just frankly don't pick up on, okay? Now, I want to show you three of these things that they would have picked up on. Them, uh, up on. They, they, I can summarize them like this. The ark, the name, and the gifts. The ark, the name, and the gifts. So the first, the ark. In verse three, this stuff's cool, by the way. This will make you love your Bible, okay? This will make you love your Bible. The Bible is so cool, okay? It is such an amazing book. It really is. It's because God inspired it. Um, in verse three, it says this. When she could no longer hide him, She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Okay, what's what's up with that? In the Bible, water is associated with death and judgment. Think Noah from Genesis, okay? Death and judgment, God sends water. Think uh, in Revelation 21, I taught this a couple months ago. Uh, One of the indicators when Jesus makes all things new, it says that the sea was no more. Why? Because the sea for the ancients was the place of death and judgment. It's like, we don't want to go there. That always kills people, right? That's what the water stands for in the Bible. Now, don't miss this. In our story, the Nile was the place of death for Hebrew boys like Moses. But God is delivering him from the waters of judgment via a little baby boat. Just like he did Noah back in Genesis chapter 6. In fact, the Hebrew word used for the little boat that Moses' mom built is the same Hebrew word used for the ark that Noah built in Genesis chapter 6, okay? So, um, in fact, I think I read somewhere, this isn't in my notes, but I think I read somewhere that it's the, those are the only two places that that Hebrew word is used in the whole of the Old Testament. So it's like, man, the writer Moses is trying to get our attention. Here's the point. Waters of judgment and an ark always precede salvation and blessing and multiplication in the Bible. Israelites reading this would have been like, oh shoot, God's about to save, okay? We know Genesis. God's doing something there with the little like water and the little boat thing, okay? Number two, the name. The name. Pharaoh's daughter in verse 10 names him Moses. Look at this. This is verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said... This is what the name Moses means. I drew him out of the water. I drew him out of the water. Names in the Hebrew Bible are significant because they often foreshadow the way that God will use that person. Think Jesus changing Simon's name to Peter. This is Peter. He changes his name. Like, I always think, like, what a power move. Jesus, like, your name is Peter now. And he's like, Okay, you know, imagine if you just started changing people's names. Uh, This is what God does, though. He names people for how he will use them in the future. Now, a big theme that we will talk more about through the book of Exodus is God's sovereignty and human freedom. Nobody has opinions on that, okay? Nobody has opinions on God's sovereignty and human freedom. We're going to talk a lot about that in Exodus. I'm not going to tell you what week, so you keep coming back, all right? We're going to talk a lot about this. Um, But watch this. She thinks she is naming Moses after how she found him. God is naming him for how he is going to use him to draw his people up out of the waters of the Red Sea and deliver them, foreshadowing for God's future work. That's why his name's Moses, okay? God's naming him. By the way, I'll just give you the little, a little hint of where we're going. Exodus is going to hold these two things in tension, and it's never going to resolve it, okay? So uh, both are true, okay? There you go. You don't have to come back, I guess. Number three. <laughs> Number three. The gifts. The gifts. 
In verses 11 through 22, we see Moses' gifting and passions displayed. Remember we talked about this. For the first time, when his heart breaks over the slavery of his people, and he wants to do something about it. He's a rescuer and a deliverer of the Hebrew people. This is who God made him to be. He just uses those gifts in the wrong way when he kills the Egyptian. Right passion, wrong way. His gifts haven't matured yet, so God sends him to a desert to mature. I had a whole section I had to delete about how deserts in the Bible are the place of maturity. So if you're in a desert, hang on. God's doing something in you, okay? So anyways, moving on. Now, cool little narrative side note. Cool little narrative side note here. Um, What we see happening is that God is taking Moses through a personal exodus experience so that he can be ready to lead a mass exodus in his later years. Okay, so just pay attention to this. Moses is delivered from the waters of judgment. Ding, ding, ding. Oh yeah, that's going to happen later in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh is chasing Moses. Ding, ding, ding. That's going to happen later in Exodus. And he escapes into the wilderness. Ding, ding, ding. That's going to happen later in Exodus. God is preparing salvation for his people in Moses' story. Again, I'll just say this. Your greatest ministry and leadership is often done out of the places of darkness and pain that you've experienced in your past. And when Moses, listen to this guys, later in the book of Exodus, when Moses finds himself being like delivered through the, he finds himself at a sea and he's like, how are we going to get across? He goes, I've been here before. That's the whole point. God's going to do something. He delivered me one time. He knows the story of his birth. Whenever he's being chased by Pharaoh, he's telling, he should be telling the people of God, guys, Pharaoh's chased me before, and look at me right here. Whenever he goes into the wilderness, he's like, I've been in the wilderness before, and I came back to lead. God's doing something, right? Now, he's not that good of a leader. He's actually going to freak out a lot. But this is the point. What's happening in his life right now that's really hard is actually God preparing salvation for his people. So here's what the author of Exodus, Moses himself, is intending for us as a reader to feel as we read this passage. Oh, shoot. It might look like God is not there. It might look really dark, but if you look a little closer, God is preparing salvation and joy in that darkness and suffering. God is all over the place in this dark passage if we will look hard enough. Now, here's why I showed you that. Here's why I showed you that. What we did with that passage on doing a second reading and looking a little bit harder for the hand of God is what you likely need to do in your life right now. On the, on the first reading you take of your life, it might feel like God is a million miles away. It might feel like, man, I don't see God, I don't see any of his promises in my life, I don't see him doing anything good, I don't see him, I don't see him at all. I feel like he's a million miles away. What you need to do is you need to take a second reading of your life, and I think if you'll take a second reading of your life, you might just see God's hidden hand all over it. Look for God's hidden hand. So I'll give you an example from my life. I told you, this is just going to be long. I've got a lot more to say, so just settle in. Um, I'll give you an example from my life. Um, in 2014, uh, Allie and I just became convinced through the work of a, a few mentors that um, we were supposed to start a, a, a new church in Denver. And uh, there's a lot of backstory to that, but we were like, man, we're convinced of this. So I, I did what you should start doing if, if you think God's calling you this, and you got, mentor, you got mentors around you, and they're like, yeah, yeah, go for it. We think, you, we think you're good. Uh, I started raising money because you need a bunch of money. I started building a team. So I started talking to people like uh, Jonathan and Sarah. And uh, one of the things you have to do in order to plant a church is you have to go through what's called an assessment, okay? So here's what an assessment, a church planning assessment is. Um, it's basically this three-day intensive interview where they unpack your whole life for you. <laughs> and they basically are looking for two things. Do you have the competency to start a new kingdom work, and do you have the character to start a new kingdom work? So they, the character part, they unpacked your whole marriage, they separated me and Allie so that we could say whatever we needed to say without holding it against each other. We work with marriage counselors. Um, they, They ask, like, hey, do you have any hidden things? Because the New Testament holds pastors to a really high moral standard. Like, if you've got hidden stuff in your life, it's a no-go, right? So they, so they unpack your character, but they also unpack your competency. Like, what in your past makes you think that you can actually go in and call a big old group of people to like a shared vision for the kingdom of Jesus. Like, what makes you think, do you have the competence to go and do this? So we go through this big thing. It was in Las Vegas. We fly to Vegas. We go through the thing. It's weird that it was in Vegas. (laughs) I'm aware of that. Uh, But uh, we go through, we go, so we go to Vegas. We had a blast. Like, we wandered around the strip, saw really crazy people, rode rides. It was fun. Um, (laughs) 
And uh, uh, so we get, we get done with this and like, hey, we'll, you know, we'll connect with you in a couple weeks with your results. And, um, and so we get on, I think we Skyped at the time because I don't think Zoom was even a thing, which is weird to think about. So we get on Skype um, and uh, this guy gets on and he, he basically tells us that we failed. He, he says, hey, you, you know, I don't think you are competent to do this. Um, and, uh, which is never an easy thing to be told. Um, and so, you know, we nod and smile. And we're like, okay. And what's attached to this is like a whole lot of funding and funding streams for a new church. Okay, like if you don't get the green light, it's like a no-go, you know. So he says on there, he goes, nah, but man, I just want to be really honest with you. I don't even, I don't know that, I don't even think you're, not only do I not think you're called to plant a church, I, man, I don't even know if, like, God's called you to, like, serve in the local church. And, uh, okay. So we get off there, and I'm like, man, like, I was, like, about to graduate with a master's degree in theology at the point. Like, everything that I had given my life to was kind of like, so this was all a waste, you know? And it, it was super confusing. So we get off there. Uh, we sit, I remember the office we were sitting in. We cried. I said words that I can't repeat from the stage. Because <laughs> um, I was angry. And uh, in fact, I'm still dealing with this. Here's, here's how I'm still dealing with this. I saw somebody retweet this guy like a year and a half ago. I'm not on Twitter anymore because it's just so toxic for me. But I saw somebody retweet, this is part of the reason it's toxic for me. I saw somebody retweet this guy. I screenshotted it, his picture, I edited it on my phone. I drew horns on it and sent it to Mike and Jonathan. (laughs) Careful what you do to me, because I might just come for you. (laughs) So I'm still dealing with this. It was was really, but anyways, it was really, um, it was really disorienting for us, uh, really scary for us. But man, I look... This is one of those things where it's like I look back on that and, you know, in the middle of that hardship and confusion and frustration and anger, God was doing a good work that I just couldn't see. Like, because of that, we slowed down. I got to know Jonathan better. Jonathan and Sarah were able to get married, so they were able to join us. In that, I, I met Brian Bar. I was introduced to Brian Barley. Brian Barley had also, he pastors the summit, had also been told the exact same thing, and he put his arm around me. He was like, buddy, they don't know what they're talking about. Come on, I'll train you, okay? So he puts his arm around me. He welcomes me on staff at the summit. Through Brian Barley, I meet Mike McDaniel, who's sitting right over here, who, you know, seven years ago, whenever this happened, eight years ago, whenever this happened, I, I had... I, I didn't even know that Mike would be on our staff later. What, the peop- what, what you need to know about Mike is Mike is known as like the Yoda of disciple making and church planting. Um, he, in fact, he was in, he doesn't want me to say this, so, but that's fine. He was in North Carolina training hundreds of pastors on how to make disciples and how to plant churches this last week. And man, God was like doing all this stuff that I was mad about, but he was being good. And it's like, man, what you might need to do is you might need to look for God's hidden hand. You might, look for God, you, need, you might need to look for God's hidden hand. What God is really good at is taking not only things that we misunderstand, but even evil things that happen to us and turning them into our good. This is Romans 8, 28. It says this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Guys, when you feel confused about what God is doing in your life, look at the cross. Think about this. On the cross, the darkest moment in human history where the innocent son of God was being crucified, in that darkness and in that physical suffering, God was working the salvation of the world. In that moment, even Jesus himself, this is called the cry of dereliction, was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you feel forsaken by God, Jesus has felt the same way. But in that dark moment, God was working salvation. When it feels like life is marked more by suffering than by good, look for God's hidden hand. Really practically, 
we just shove this down in life. Maybe, maybe you need to work on practicing some gratitude this week. Let's make this really practical. Like you just need to look at like some good things that have happened to you over the last five to ten years that have led up to this or however long, and you need to go, man, God, God's not, God's there. God's there. I might not see him right now, but he's there. Or maybe it's in community group where you just spend time this week in CG, like sharing ways that you've seen God's hidden hand that maybe you didn't even recognize until we were talking about this. And you're like, yeah, yeah, he's doing stuff. He's doing stuff in my life. I remember this line from John Piper, and then I'll get my last point. He says this, at any given moment, God is up to about 10,000 things, and I'm probably aware of about three of them. He's like, man, God's, God's there. Look for God's hidden hand. Number two, I think this is the stronger point. I'm kind of excited for this one. Choose courageous rebellion against corrosive world power. When you feel like God is far away, it's easy to want to just give up on God and walk away. I'm done. I think God's given up on me, so I'm going to give up on God. And then we just let the corrosive currents of culture sweep us up because it's easier and less exhausting than resistance. And, guys, I think that this happens to, on average, one person a week at this point in the life of our church. So this is kind of a warning to you. Don't let the corrosive currents of culture sweep you off your feet. They're destructive. It's just easier. It's less exhausting. But, but, and it's less exhausting than resistance. But in Exodus 2, we learn that it's those who choose courageous rebellion, those who choose faithfulness to the way of God when it's dark, that eventually walk into the light, even if it costs them their life. The way God works through this story is through people choosing courageous rebellion to the corrosive and destructive world powers. Goodness, what a story of people choosing the redemptive and life-saving way of God over the way of the world, even when it could have cost them and did cost them everything. Two examples I want to draw out of this text, and then right when I'm done with these, we'll, we'll shut this thing down and we'll take communion and sing, okay? Two examples. The women... My goodness, the women in this passage, the strength and leadership and courage and power of the women in the first two chapters of Exodus is something that we do not want to miss. Am I right, ladies? Yes. Okay. So let's impart some power to the sisters here. In chapter 1, we get the midwives, Shifra and Pua, just standing up to Pharaoh because babies' lives matter. They're like, we will not do that. Side note, quick application here. The world has always been trying to kill off the most vulnerable, and God always stands on their side. Always. You see that right here in Exodus 1 and 2. It's a whole sermon that I could preach out of that. Always stands on the side of the most vulnerable. In the first part of chapter 2, we get, don't miss this, only women standing up against the corrosive power of the death machine of the world. Now there's something to the women standing up and resisting that has to do with the way that God created you guys and the unique like power and passion that you guys have that we see here in Exodus chapter 2. The Bible teaches that men and women are completely equal and yet distinct by divine design, okay? Now, this isn't only a theological category. This is a biological category. Go home and take your clothes off, okay? You'll see this. You're unique by divine design. We see this all over this passage, that God created women with a unique compassion and strength and power when it comes to the lives of vulnerable people that a lot of times, if I can be honest, us men just don't have. We don't. We don't have it. You guys have something to offer that we don't have. The women stand up and say, you will not kill off these babies. Courageous rebellion. In verses 1 through 10, here are all the examples. We get Moses' mom courageously hiding her son. We get Moses' sister courageously watching what would happen and then working up the courage to kind of trick Pharaoh's daughter into letting Moses' biological mom nurse him for a few years. 
Pharaoh's daughter rebels against her own wicked father and her servant girl's helper. And then Moses' mom is hiding Moses and nursing him for like four or five years. The women, man! Like power and courage right there. I love this. Setting the tone. Courageous rebellion against the corrosive world power. Putting their own lives on the line. The women. Second example, starting in verse 11, Moses. Moses himself. Remember, Moses was Pharaoh's grandson. So much privilege. Access to whatever he wanted in the kingdom. And yet, in verse 11, we see that Moses chooses to identify with his own Hebrew people instead of the Egyptian people. He chooses to give up his status and courageously rebel against the political powers of Pharaoh. And this will be a theme for the rest of the story. I will not choose the ease of that life. I will suffer with God's people. And in Hebrews 11, it talks about this choice. It says this, by faith, Moses after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's Egypt, edict, the king and Egypt's edict, sorry. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. Courageous rebellion courageous rebellion, choosing the way and power of God over the way and power of the world. Last little piece of application. Throughout American history, the African-American church has gravitated to the book of Exodus because it so closely mirrors their suffering and plight in the United States of America. Exodus is the book of the black church. It is. And one of the beautiful things in the tradition of the black church is that they, in their suffering, they knew that God's redemptive change often happens through the people of God choosing courageous rebellion to the political and world powers of the day. This is how it happens. And they knew that from the book of Exodus. In the history of our nation, God raised up new deliverers like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. and the Reverend John Perkins to lead in courageous rebellion. I've had the privilege of hearing uh, Dr. John Perkins preach in person a couple of times. It's, it's amazing, beautiful. And he calls courageous rebellion, and I've heard him preach on this, getting into good trouble. You gotta, if you're gonna walk with Jesus, you gotta be in good trouble. If you don't have some people that don't really like you, you're probably not being good and faithful to Jesus. He calls it good trouble. We've gotta choose courageous rebellion, good trouble. And as these people did this, they produced the greatest redemptive change that our country has ever seen. Now, moment of honesty. If you are white like me, If you're white like me, we need to look at our black brothers and sisters in Christ as the example. They are the example. Incredible faithfulness to Jesus for what it looks like to have a redemptive backbone when it comes to the corrosive tides of culture. Here's why. Because we're used to being the majority. In many ways, if you look like me and you're a follower of Jesus in this nation, you are used to being in the majority. But listen to me, if you choose faithfulness to Jesus, you're going to have to learn what it looks like to walk and live in the minority. You're going to have to go, man, the word of God says this, the world's saying this, what will I choose? Will I choose courageous rebellion? Or will I choose the way of the world? We're going to have to be okay where it's okay. We're going to have to be okay with at times not being liked. And right now in our nation, that's what it is. It's more of like a reputation thing than it is an actual like physical persecution thing. Ah, they don't like me or they misunderstand me. We're gonna have to be okay with being misunderstood because of the things that we believe. When you feel like God is far away, it's easy to wanna give up on God and just let the corrosive currents of culture sweep you up and wander away. But in Exodus 2, we learn that it's those who choose courageous rebellion when it's dark that eventually walk into the light, even if it costs them their life. We believe in the resurrection, folks. This was true of Jesus, our savior. 
In Exodus 2, the political powers order the murder of babies. And don't miss this, in the beginning of Luke, in the beginning of Matthew, the same thing happens with Jesus as Herod commands genocide again. Jesus and his parents ironically escape to Egypt, but Jesus would then come out of Egypt and go to the wilderness to mature just like Moses. There's God's hidden hand. A new exodus is coming. Jesus would then spend his life choosing courageous rebellion against both the religious and political powers of his day, and it cost him his life. He hung on a cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the darkness of Jesus' death, God's hidden hand was saving you and me. God didn't give up on you. And he was inviting us now into a new exodus where we could be delivered from our bondage to Satan's sin, hell, and death by trusting in Jesus, our new deliverer. And we will be delivered into a future promised land where Jesus himself is going to make all things new. If you feel forsaken by God, look at the cross. Look at the cross. God died for you. He loves you. He won't abandon you now. So we have four ways of responding that we are going to participate in. They're right here on the screen. Salvation, communion, mutual ministry, and singing. If you've never turned from your sin and believed in Jesus and turned your life over to him, you need to be saved today. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and take communion, remembering that God died for me. He loves me. We also encourage you to mutual ministry. It's hard to see God's hidden hand alone. It's hard to be courageous alone. That's why we need each other. And so if you need to grab somebody from your community group and take them to a back corner and you just be like, can you pray for me? Can you talk to me? Can you encourage me? We encourage that to happen. You have this space. I know it's getting late, but whatever. It's fine. We're also gonna have prayer people right up here who would love to pray for you. If you don't even have words and you're about to give up, just come. By the way, on communion, I've been told 30 times there's gluten-free option back here in the left corner, okay? So if you eat gluten-free, didn't forget that. And then finally, singing. We're gonna remember the gospel. We're gonna have these gospel truths go from our head down into our heart by singing. So let's stand and let's respond to the Lord together.